a tumultuous four weeks in China, beloved listeners, or a wave of protests sweeping across the country, triggered at least in part by the deaths of 10 people in an apartment block fire. According to protesters, they were unable to escape because the building was in COVID lockdown. Now, despite China's strict censorship regime, the unrest quickly spread. The protesters have tapped into a vein of anger and dissatisfaction at the Chinese government's zero COVID policy. Now, this is has to be the biggest protest movement since the pro-democracy protests in 1989, which, of course, uh, led to the massacre in Tiananmen Square. Now, joining me to unpack what this wave of protest uh, or people power might mean for China is Jennifer Su, that's H-S-U. Jennifer is Project Director of the Multiculturalism, Identity and Influence Project at the Lowy Institute. Jennifer, it's your first time on the program and I welcome you to it. We've been, uh, we've seen students in the biggest and most uh, posh universities in Beijing protesting. What are the similarities and the differences between this and 1989? Uh, Good evening, Philip, and thanks for having me on the show. So, yes, we have seen a wave of protests happening in the last week um, or 10 days across Beijing and other cities in China. Students, as you've noted, at different campuses and at um, two of the best campuses in China, Beijing uh, and Tsinghua, have protested about the strict lockdown measures and um, some have called for you know, broader political reforms. And this type of protest we haven't seen in China for 30-odd years. Um, and so it is quite remarkable, remarkable um, that they have come to the fore. The protesters are singing or have been singing the uh, Communist Internationale. We want to be citizens, not slaves, they've chanted. Yeah, so I think, you know, some of the um, the way the students have couched their anxieties, their discontent, sort of resonates with events of China's um, early 20th century history. Um, in 1921, um, you know, at the founding of the Communist Party, it was really on the back of intellectual t- tumult led by students that um, culminated in the May 4th movement in 1919. And that was really sort of a rejection of Chinese traditional culture and the code words science and democracy really became um, sort of, um, you know, real harbingers of China's movement towards modernization. And then in 1989, we saw sort of student protesters catch their discontent and their protests within that May 4th movement slogans and framework as well. And again, in this year, in 2022, we've seen sort of harking back to those earlier times of student protests where, you know, students were, at least one student um, said in on Tsinghua campus that it was their duty to, you know, pursue these notions of equality and democracy. What's the significance of the white pieces of paper that the protesters hold up, Jennifer? 
So as as we know, protesting in places like China, anywhere across China, is dangerous and um, because of the surveillance state. Um, so the significance of the of the white paper is it, there are no words, but we know that it is a symbol of protest. It doesn't say anything, but we know immediately reading that it is a symbolic gesture of discontent and protest. Is this as profoundly political as the demos before Tiananmen, or is it entirely focused on the, on the pandemic? Well, I think, you know, the students, at least the students and um, the workers who have also been protesting in um, southern China across the different factories have um, framed their discontent around the strict COVID measures that China has been um, enduring for nearly three years. But I think there are also sort of other more localised issues as well for students. One of the big concerns is that they're, you know, the last three, nearly three years have been lost and the economy isn't looking great. Um, and so they're worried about their future in terms of finding employment. Could any of this be seen as a backlash to uh, Xi's increasing consolidation of power? Yeah, I think um, definitely Xi Jinping will be rattled by the the protests um, of of the of the last two weeks. But I think one of the main difference between, say, 1989 and 2022 is that in 1989 there was huge divisions within the Communist Party between um, economic reformers and economic conservatives. In 2022, we don't see that division. Xi Jinping has essentially consolidated power within his hands. Um, So I think that's the major difference and we don't see any split within the party. Well, back in 89, the the leadership uh, dithered, but then cracked down very, very forcefully. How do you assess uh, Xi's response thus far? So we've seen um, uh, easing of COVID restrictions. And last week it was reported when Xi Jinping met um, EU leaders in Beijing, Xi Jinping noted to to the leaders that the protests were um, a, a result of you know people feeling frustrated because of zero COVID measures, and now um, we've seen you know several cities have eased controls um, around COVID, despite COVID continue to COVID cases continue to grow in China. Let's go back to the lockdown of this uh, apartment block, which seems to have been a one of the events that triggered it. Is this common? Um, so this happened in Rumuchi, which is in uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Region, um, uh, far west of China. I think the, the, the fire that happened in the apartment complex, um, many would say was a result of first responders being unable to access the apartments. But irrespective of that, it took three hours for first responders to attend to the fire. And by that time, it was already too late. So local government, you know, are seen as a weak point, uh, sometimes seen as a weak point for the Chinese Communist Party. Now, will the concessions stop or muffle the protests? I think, you know, by acknowledging, um, you know, the frustrations of the Chinese citizenry and then for some cities to have eased control, I think we're seeing, you know, some of that protest being 
um, at least dissipating for now. And we've also um, read, uh, you know, protesters who've politicised their protests have been tapped by the Chinese security apparatus. So I think, you know, uh, small concessions, easing of COVID, um, along with a very highly technical, technologically able surveillance state um, has uh, at least put a stop to the protest for the time being. My guest is Jennifer Sue, and we're discussing the what have been growing protests in China. Chinese officials are pivoting to a new line, which is that Omicron is a less virulent variant. Hence, they can sort of take their foot off the uh, accelerator. Are people accepting this argument? I think there is, um, I mean, as we have seen here in Australia, when um, COVID restrictions were eased, there was concern for sort of the the more vulnerable parts of our population, including the elderly. And I think that is the same in China as well, where um, the elderly proportion of the population are under vaccinated or they haven't received their booster shot. And moreover, um, you know, Chinese manufactured um, COVID vaccines are less effective than their Western um, counterparts. Well, let's let's now look at this uh, potential problem for the for the president, and that's this uh, vaccine nationalism. How extensive is it? I know that he's uh, refused to accept uh, or refused to buy Pfizer and Moderna, for example. Yeah, I think um, you know there's been a real holding off to buy Pfizer, Moderna, mRNA vaccines um, for the Chinese population. And I think, yeah, na- vaccine nationalism is definitely one aspect of that um, resistance. Is, is, is it a cost consideration or simply national pride? I think national pride has a lot to do with it, um, considering how much of China's vaccine was um, given as a form of aid, um, development aid to developing countries um, in Southeast Asia and elsewhere in the world. The the fact that, um, you know, China was able to produce a homegrown vaccine was seen as a proud, as a source of pride for China and the Chinese so, um, and then now we know Pfizer and Moderna do have mRNA vaccines, but this source of pride nationalism is really sort of holding Xi back from making such purchases. To what extent would ordinary citizens in China know much or anything at all about the protests? I think, you know, through in the age that we are in, where we're all engaged um, through social media, obviously there is a great firewall um, in China. I think a lot of what we have um, seen in, you know, different parts of um, in Australia and also around um, uh, Western university campuses is that some Chinese international students have shown solidarity with their counterparts back in, in China. Um, holding up, you know, white pieces of a paper, speaking out um, as a uh, as a source of pride. So I think, you know, that will, you know, somehow trickle through the Great Firewall. Um, we know Chinese citizens are very adept in trying to um, circumvent the censorship um, and the censorship apparatus in in China. Jennifer, there's one enormous difference between the Tiananmen 
era and now, and that, of course, is the degree of technological surveillance that, that China can call upon. It won't be too hard for them to track down uh, many of the protesters, will it? Yeah, that's right. So China is one of the most advanced um, AI facial recognition um, um, apparatus in the world. And um, we know um, throughout China, particularly in um, in the Western um, regions of China, it is heavily surveilled. So, I, but I think, you know, there, there will be different forms of punishment um, meted out to the protesters if the protesters have been political in their um, protest, so calling um, a end to the CCP or for Xi Jinping to, to step down. I think that they will be treated differently to say your other types of citizens who are just protesting at you know an end to PCR tests, for example. The, the other big story, of course, out of China is that last week uh, Jiang Zemin, China's former leader, died at the age of uh, 96 and he's being widely eulogised outside the country. What are his main legacies? Well, I think, you know, he um, was of a different era to Xi Jinping. Um, he oversaw, you know, sort of the real, um, the boom time of China's economy. He, you know, o- oversaw sort of the highest economic growth rates that we've seen um, from China for, um, you know, the last 40 years and also allowing um, business people, entrepreneurs to enter the party which was unheard of um, during Mao Zedong or even in Deng Xiaoping's time, where the the party's uh, Communist Party membership was reserved for workers and, uh, you know, a select group of professions, not business or entrepreneurs. Finally, I have to ask you this. The Australia-China relationship seems to be thawing a little, but both countries are facing rising interest rates and inflation and China is losing export markets as countries switch to, uh, to supply chain resilience. What is its post-COVID economic outlook, uh, Jennifer? Yeah, so the IMF in October um, forecasted a 3.2 growth rate for China, which is the second lowest since 1977. And I think, you know, 3.2 is still better than 1% or 2%, which some countries are facing. It's still growth, but much, much slower. And we've seen, um, you know, higher youth unemployment rates, around 20%. People's working lives have been disrupted. So there, so there are sort of cascading effects that we can anticipate from the zero COVID policies. And I think it will take time for China to regain its economic bounce. Thank you, Jennifer Sue. Jennifer is Project Director of the Multiculturalism, Identity and Influence Project at the Lowy Institute. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.